Please stand clear of the doors. Por favor, manténganse alejado de las puertas. Hey, everybody! Welcome to Unlocking the Magic, episode number 149. We have a very special show to you. For you today, we have... Actually, it's a repeat guest on the show today. Not our children. Not our children. He's our new best friend. Or at least my new best friend. Definitely. <laughs> I think maybe Bruce might be a little jealous. I'm just kidding. He's the author of The Thinking Fans Guide Walt Disney World Epcot. And also the host of the zippity Do pod. I'm talking about Aaron Wallace. I was excited to have Aaron back on. This wasn't necessarily an interview. It's more of a conversation. It's a conversation... More so because he did just release his newest book a few months back, and I'm dying to read it, and I was really excited to talk about this book because it's everything I've always wanted in a book, I, learning and, and digesting and reading about Epcot. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty good book. I, I, I went over the chapters on Amazon. I'm going to get into it. Uh, hopefully, it comes out on Audible because that's my style. <laughs> that is your style. But if you get the book and you read it, I'll definitely check it out. Um, I did try to do an intro with Aaron when he was on the air, but I totally botched it. So you're going to hear that in a second. Wonderful. I really don't like doing the intros while people are on with us. I'd rather do these intros later and then it's, just kind of have a conversation start because I feel like it's more natural that way. It's so nerve wracking. I think going back when we had Marty Sklar and Roly Crump on, it's so nerve wracking to have them on the air with us and then introduce them. I don't like it because it's yeah. like, oh, I... I just want to give them that special introduction that they deserve, but it's like it's so much pressure. <laughs> and you just want to start the conversation. It feels exactly. It's a little bit awkward. Not gonna lie. Yes. Yeah. Very so, much so. You know. Before yeah. we get into the episode, go check us out on Facebook. We go live every Monday night. If you're just new to the podcast, subscribe on iTunes, and also go uh, like us on Facebook. Unlocking the magic over there. We do a live show, kind of like this, but a little more fun and less structured on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so I just want to throw that in there before we get into the episode with Aaron. All right, let's get into it. Aaron Wallace joins us again. He was at, on the show back in October of 2016. Uh, we talked about his other book that he had. He recently has a new book that's coming out called Thinking Fan Guide to Thinking Fans Guide to Epcot. Excited to have yep. Aaron back on the you, show. First, I already messed it up. It's Thinking Fans Guide to Walt Disney World Epcot. Oh, all right. Let me redo that. It's a longer title than the new Guardians of the Galaxy ride at Disney World. Yes. Sorry. All right. We'll, we'll start that over. That's- well, I want to thank you, Aaron, for joining us once again. We, I just love having you on. We have so much in common. And I am a fangirl now. I'm a true Aaron Wallace fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> you are the first. I'm the fr- I, that can't be true. Not at all. But uh, Bruce and I were talking, and we when we had you on the show way back, which seems like forever ago, it was back in October, we um, discussed there's a lot of our friends over at Lonky Magic that actually they were they heard you for the very first time on our show. So I thought it would be fun before we get really far into it today that we kind of do kind of like get to know Aaron Wallace a little bit more. So like I was thinking maybe like three things we may not know about you, but that we should not to put you on the spot. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so on the spot, but no, it's good. It's a good thing. (laughs) Well, let me first say thank you so much for having me back on. I am a big fan of you guys, too, and uh, this is my second time on this show. We did the Facebook Live thing, too, and it's really cool to you know, get to talk to your listeners and to unlock the magic with you guys. So uh, I appreciate being back here. Uh, yeah, so for those who don't know, yeah, I've been doing the podcasting thing for actually 13 years this week. Uh, 13 years ago, my Disney podcast, which is called Zippity Doo Pod, started. I think it's somehow now the longest running Disney podcast out there, even though there haven't been a ton of episodes. But uh, it's just sort of a show for taking uh, a deeper look at all things Disney and fundamentally why we love them. You know, what drives us to movies? to theme park attractions and just sort of taking a step back and reflecting on the big picture and and what it is at its heart about Disney that speaks to us. And then kind of from that uh, spring, this book series called The Thinking Fan's Guide to Disney. And uh, there have been three books in that, uh, Magic Kingdom, Hocus Pocus, the Halloween movie, randomly enough, and then uh, this new book on Epcot. Uh, So that's sort of my thing. But three things that people don't know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, (laughs) 
This could, if somebody was to reverse this on me, I, I would be totally. Skype would accidentally <laughs> crash and for some yeah. reason on Connie's phone only. <laughs> Um, the thing that I want to say is I love your approach to what you do on your podcast and in your books because it's kind of like what we do. We kind of unlock uh, these certain attractions or resorts. I'm kind of giving you a time to stall here, Aaron, so you can think about that question. Um, <laughs> Good job, Bruce. <laughs> and I like your approach. It's like taking a step back, not necessarily rushing through these things and you know appreciating the small details and what goes on inside all of these attractions, resorts, parks, uh, more than just the – things that everybody talks about. And I like that approach. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And yeah, I think that's why, you know, it's a good fit for us to be talking together. And I think so many people are into this idea because when you first enter the Disney fandom, just on a superficial level, like the parks, for example, are so wowing, right? I mean, it's just it's sensory overload the first couple of times you go there. And there's just this whole orientation period where you don't even know if you should turn left or right to get to the next attraction, because it's all just sort of a, a blur. And then as as you start to become more familiar with these places, you sort of sink deeper into another level of love. It really is like a relationship, a bond that forms with these places. And that connects with this bond that you remember from childhood when you were first exposed to these wonderful films that, that Walt created, then the movies from the 90s Renaissance. Uh, and so it just all sort of comes together. And then I think the great thing about living in this current you know, age, the last 10 years or so, is that fans, right? Just like, like I, we're all just Disney fans and, you know, the, the company produces some great content for fans, but like we need more than what they put out. So we just uh, are able to, to create things now with technology, you know, podcasts, blogs, books, whatever it may be. And we're all, you know, learning from that together and, and teaching each other. So it's just, it's such a cool time to be a Disney fan and it is easier than ever to learn uh, about the park's history and to and to really like get that deeper appreciation. I was just listening to an interview with the voice of Rod Serling in the Tower of Terror attraction. This was on the Disney oh Coast, Coast podcast. Yeah, and he was talking about how you know, he was a Disney parks geek, interestingly enough, like growing up long before he ever knew he would be involved in one of the most classic attractions ever. And he would actually call in into Disney and just ask random questions like how tall are the animatronics in Pirates of the Caribbean? Because he was just such a fan, but there was no internet. There was no way to find all of this stuff out. And he said he actually ended up talking to a young Tom Fitzgerald, who you know is now like a, an Imagineering legend, uh, who would who would give him all of these facts and stats. And like that was the only way to get it then. So, wow. I mean, that, that's a cool story. But thank God we are you know now Disney fans in this generation, and we don't have to bug Tom Fitzgerald on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Although it would be nice. That would it be would nice. be. <laughs> I'm sure you can find him on Twitter or Facebook or something like that now and ask him those questions over the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll send Tom Fitzgerald an email and uh, and, tr- and quiz him on his Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Have him come on the show and do an episode with you. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot now. Back to those three questions. What do you got for us? Okay, so I've got right. – so these are just things people don't know about me. All right. One – People might know this, but I have interviewed uh, in person, like face-to-face. I'm going to try to make these Disney-related, right? Perfect. Uh, of course. Two current Disney executives. Can you guess who they might be? Ooh, this is exciting, Bruce. There's current some pressure on you. Disney executives. Are they for uh, the parks? Uh, they are involved in the parks, but not, but not like first and foremost parks people. Then I have no idea. Mm. One's a creative <laughs> and one's kind of a head honcho. Hmm tricky how did you get these people i'm just like fascinated by even like having well okay (laughs) so the face-to-face is these were both at the world premiere of the first cars that's kind of another hint huh Mm. john lassiter john lassiter that's one of them no yeah and he was so cool and personable and wearing a hawaiian shirt of course with like a blazer over it because it's a fancy event (laughs) Uh, he was super nice and candid uh, and then the other person, quite a bit higher up the totem pole, at the top of it even. Bob Iger? Hint, hint. Bob Iger. Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. Both of those guys in person you got an interview with. 
Yeah, yeah. Bob Iger's was super short, actually, because at the time, uh, so I was stationed on the red carpet at this media event beside a guy from uh, an ABC affiliate. And at the time, the Walt Disney Company was in the process of offloading a lot of the ABC affiliates. And so it directly affected this journalist's job. And he was hammering Bob Iger. Like, this news had just broken, I think, like the day of the cars premiere. So this guy was hammering Bob Iger uh, with questions about this. And he clearly did not want to talk about it. So Bob was, like, running away from our section. <laughs> of the red carpet. Oh but my in, gosh. in the brief time I had with him, he was actually super, super genuine. And um, so that that was cool. I can't believe I got is... both of those and Connie didn't get one. What? Yeah. No, I see, okay, I was I was giving you, Bruce, the opportunity to shine since, you know, I can't always shine. Sure. It's not fair. No, but I really those names were like, okay, those are the names that I would thought of, but I was like, there's no way. How'd yeah. you get those? That's awesome. I was thinking of trying to think of more obscure people that maybe yeah. not the obvious, but those are right. big names. Those are great names. How? Jeez. I've heard John Lasseter is a nice guy. He's he like he is on the interviews you see on either on, on TV or on YouTube or stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Just totally John Lasseter. You know, the cool thing, like he's, a, it's, it's even weird to call him an executive. I mean, he, he absolutely is one, but you know, that's kind of like not his shtick. It's not his persona because he mm. was just, yeah, you know, he was this filmmaker, and even before that, he was a fan and like a Disneyland cast member. So, yeah, you know, right. he's so he seems so much more grassroots, I think, than than other Disney suits. Right, he definitely wow. is not what you think of when you think of an executive. Yeah, definitely not. Okay, a second fact, uh, and this is sort of tangentially Disney, but it's relevant to the D twenty three Expo, which is coming up. Is that I was born on the exact date that the Golden Girls premiered. On NBC. Okay. <laughs> September 14th, 1985. Drop the uh, mic. That happened. <laughs> 85. You're a baby. Yeah, I'm 31. But so there's a, there's a, so the show's now 31, right? But I guess this year marks the 25th anniversary of the series finale of the Golden Girls, which of course was a Disney produced and created show. And so that is why there is now, I don't know if you guys have heard, there's this event coming up at the D23 Expo that is celebrating the Golden Girls. I actually and, didn't hear that. No. Yeah, so it was just announced like within the last week. They just, at the last minute, they announced this whole slew of really awesome last minute events. Like there's another one where uh, Whoopi Goldberg is my favorite actress. Oh, can that be my third fact? Because I didn't have one. Sure. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> sure. who yeah. I am campaigning for to become a Disney legend. Uh, she is going to be presenting an hour and a half long presentation in the at, like nighttime on the history of Disney live action musical songs. Like, how specific wow. and random is that? So cool. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I think maybe the real reason she's there is because she's going to become the secret Disney Legends inductee. Maybe. Ooh, that's an interesting... How many Disney movies was she a part of? So, well, Disney proper, there's just been a handful. You know, obviously, The Lion King, uh, Toy Story 3. I forgot uh, she was in The Lion King. Yeah. But you did? Yeah. How could you bolt- forget that? I don't movie. remember much. That's the problem. <laughs> it's a, it a small role but yeah memorable because you know her hyena has the dreadlocks it's kind of like right but uh she um, the bulk of her filmmaking career actually was with uh touchstone pictures and hollywood pictures so you know everything from you know the sister act movies uh which were you know, kind of early hits for touchstone mm. uh things like the associates uh, and Eddie and, and things like that. You know, these were all Disney movies. So kind of on the non-Disney branded side, that was like the bulk of her career. And then she's done a lot of promotional stuff for the parks. And of course, The View right now. She's been right. stuff for like a decade. And so yeah. uh, I, do you That's guys remember cool. Johnny Depp being the surprise, the surprise inductee at the last expo? I do. I remember hearing about it on uh, online in uh, – he, he had a surprising speech. Online. Yeah, well, I remember him ta- – people talking about his speech was a little bit weird. <laughs> in it true was? Johnny Depp fashion. Yeah. Yeah. What's weird, yeah. right? Well, and then you and then you kind of just come to realize that Johnny Depp's kind of weird in person. <laughs> exactly. Oh my! See, I'm see. He's doing this to me because I've been on this like Johnny Depp fangirl thing lately because I love absolutely love Pirates of the Caribbean. So he's kind of sick of hearing it. <laughs> so <laughs> I've heard some of that, Connie. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I appreciate that. Johnny Depp, I think, is a great, you know, his his greatest films have probably not come from the last few years, but I do think he is a great actor. Yeah. Um, he's definitely a great character actor. Yes, that's a good way of, of putting it. Because any movie that he's not a character and he's kind of like a normal human, he's terrible at. 
<laughs> okay, Bruce. We've heard this way too much. All right, all right. Let's Moving move on. Moving on. Yeah. Those oh, are hey. really cool. Yeah. I am quoted. This this is a better third fact, I think, than Whoopi Goldberg. Okay. I oh, am Whoopi quoted was cool. in a Johnny Depp biography. Are you really? Uh, Wait. Yeah, because I interviewed uh, Ted Elliott and Terry Rosio about 10 years ago. Uh, on right before I think the third Pirates of the Caribbean film came out. So they were the creators and the writers of Pirates of the Caribbean. They also did Treasure Planet, the Shrek movies, they did a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and so I interviewed them uh, about, in part, about Johnny Depp and how he approached the character of Johnny Shakespeare and like how much of that was what they created and how much of it is what he improvised as, as a character actor. And so mm-hmm. that interview made its way into one of the you know i'm sure there are a million biographies on johnny depp but this is just one of them so there's a third fact how much of that character that he plays is improvised on his behalf so the the writers gave him quite a bit of credit for that uh you know and and i don't know how much of that was just sort of like a professional deference to johnny depp uh but they did give him a lot of credit and i believe it honestly that a lot of jack sparrow emanates from him because like you said, Johnny, Johnny Depp's a weird guy, but if you spend any time watching him in interviews, it's almost like you can see a little bit of Jack Sparrow in him. And yeah. I, obviously, I don't know Johnny Depp, but um, you know, it's, it's, it seems like that character really kind of resonates with who he is on some like deep level. Level, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have I to say, when I first saw him play Jack Sparrow, I was kind of like, this is a little bit weird. But as you see the movies progress, you're like, that's perfect. Yeah. And you know, you guys were just talking about in a recent episode. You know, he he made those appearances in Disneyland recently to promote the new movie, and that's something he has done so many times. He's dressed up as Jack Sparrow and appeared, you know, wherever children's hospitals or public events. And there have always been rumors about him showing up in the parks, which may or may not have been true until now. But I don't think an actor does that unless a character really kind of speaks to them. Deep down, I say this too about uh, Bat Midler and Winifred Sanderson from Hocus Pocus. You know, she always is kind of going back to that character and looking for mm-hmm. reasons to go back to that character or dress up as it. And you know, you don't often see actors doing that like for free, right? Uh, right. <laughs> we actually were in Disneyland in October, and we talked to a cast member, and it was just a random incidence that we were talking to the cast member. He was running the trolley back and forth, and he was like telling us stories about Disneyland. And we ended up taking like fourteen back and forth trips when we were only supposed to take one, just because. It was so much fun talking to him. We're and he, in, yeah, we're in California Adventure. California Adventure, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And he was telling us a story about how they Johnny Depp comes into the parks all the time. Yeah, I believe it. I was once in Hollywood Studios, and I had a, a cast member friend who was working there, and they were saying, you know, this is hush-hush, but Johnny Depp is in the park, kind of incognito, coming back and forth from backstage to front of the park, and he was there. I guess his daughter was sick at the time, not like critically, but she was just not feeling well, and so he was uh, looking for some sort of special merchandise. He'd come to Hollywood Studios just for that, to cheer his daughter or some family member of his up, something like that. So, uh, yeah, I think he's one of those celebrities. He's in that club with, like, John Stamos and Steven Tyler and Neil Patrick Harris and Jennifer Goodwin, these these celebrities who are genuinely diehard Disney fans like the rest of us. And they listen to these podcasts and they go to the same websites and blogs as the people you know we know who are doing these guest columns for them and everything. And uh, they're they're famous, but they're like true blue Disney fans. Did you hear that, Connie? Johnny Depp could be listening to this podcast. He I just really- heard I just listened to Johnny John Stamos and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, if you could if you could choose, would you rather John Stamos oh, no. or Johnny Depp listen to your podcast? Oh. Bruce, that's too tricky. I, know. I don't know. Oh, oh man. That's John Stamos. I think I want to say John Stamos only I mean, come on. Full house. Who didn't love that show? And that episode where they went to Walt Disney World, like that yes. was the perfect vacation. <laughs> The house beats the mouse, parts yeah, one and two. That's the best. <laughs> All right. I can't believe I just chose. I can't believe you made me do that. I have a weird feeling that you and Aaron are going to do a podcast together. I'm going to get cut out somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. You guys like the same exact stuff. It's 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 I pretty know. funny. Well, yeah, you did a much better just... job on the spot than I did. <laughs> <laughs> you can just take a seat back, Bruce, if you'd like. No, I'm just kidding. All right, keep going. Um, I'll just I'll just listen now. No, no. no I'm just kidding. kidding. Okay, so let's get into so. Bruce mentioned earlier, we haven't read your book yet. Um, we're excited to read it. And I kind of am glad that we didn't read it yet because I feel like I have more questions of about the book and like mm-hmm. reasons for us to to read it and you know who this book is for and just you know, let's let's talk about it now. I, I'm excited about it because Epcot is something that 
it's a park that is very, very near and dear to my heart. I don't know about Bruce. It's never really been Bruce's favorite park. Well, here's what I said on the, I've said this on the show many times. It's every time I go to Disney, my people always ask us, Hey, what are your favorite parks? Rate them, you know, one through four. And every time I go, my ratings change. And right now Epcot's kind of on the lower end of my ratings at the moment. That's fair fair. enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, Epcot's such a weird park. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> weird in so many ways. Uh, I was actually just talking with uh, Dan Heaton from the uh, Tomorrow Society podcast the other week, and we were talking about how weird the 1980s were. Uh, just as a decade, like it was all about celebrating the weird from Cindy Lauper to Weird Al to what was his <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwait or whatever his name was. Just yes. Weird. So everything, everything weird was in vogue and it was just sort of celebrated for its weirdness and its individuality. And, and you know, Epcot is very much an expression of the 1980s. One of the things I write about in this book, which is really a book, a, a book of issues, like tackling the big issues, the big questions that kind of hang over Epcot. And one of those is, well, what is Epcot supposed to do about the 1980s? And I argue that uh, the 1980s are as inherent to Epcot's identity, permanently inherent uh, to its identity, as the 1950s are to Disneyland. And you can make this argument really about any of the Disney parks, you know, the late 80s, early 90s for Hollywood Studios, the 90s for Animal Kingdom, so on and so forth. These parks reflect and will always reflect the time in which they open. And so I, I argue in the book, and I kind of make a case for it, that Epcot needs to embrace this, but embrace it in a not in a tacky way, which one can do when embracing the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> like Millie Vanilli but style. In, yeah, exactly. But Watch in more of first. a Stranger Things style, sort of like a, a classy, subtle embrace uh, of the decade, because it will always be there. Uh, but it's it's weird in that way, but it's also weird in that we are now entering what I think might be a third generation or iteration of Epcot, right? So there was Epcot Center, uh, and and those who remember it, remember it very fondly. Like, if you spend any time on fan message boards, people are just fervent with their love for 1980s Epcot Center. And then you have just Epcot lowercase, right, of, of the started in, like, 94 to 96. Uh, and now we're about to, we're on the cusp of this new, as, a, as yet unknown iteration of Epcot that I think we might learn a lot about uh, in a couple of weeks at the D23 Expo. But sure. so... I think people's feelings about Epcot are often determined by which of these generations they first discovered the park in. Uh, and so I don't know, Bruce, I forget, when was your first time at Epcot? Like two, the 2000. So mine was later in life. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, that probably was not Epcot's, you know, crowning year. <laughs> right. 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 You know, there was, there was the big, the, the wand and the, was that there? Yes, when it was. Were, it absolutely yeah. was there. So you, know, you had that, and you had a lot of these, then especially aging attractions in Future World. I mean, they've spruced some of them up since then, right? Like Soren and Test Track. But I mean, just everything was really aging back then. And this was the case for a long time. It was just everything seemed dated. There was nothing future about it at all. And and there was this effort to pander to children uh, in, in so many of the Future World attractions, and even things with like uh, Kidcot and World Showcase. And all of this was a response to Epcot Center, which Disney fans like me loved, but children in the 80s often said was boring and so there was just, just there's this weird clash going on in you know in the early 2000s and that was true for about 10 years so if you discovered epcot during that like 10 year period and really kind of up to the present day as millions of disney world guests and now fans have then yeah i think it totally makes sense that at least part of that park probably isn't going to resonate with you right and i think that's exactly the case like I feel like it's a park where, um, if you where I went there for the first time later in my life as I was a little bit older with my children, um, there's not much for me to have reminisced about when I was a kid. It's kind of it's. I look around and you know, Ellen's Energy Adventure, for instance. When we go in there, I I, I immediately like reflect on. I do reflect on the '80s. I feel like that's when that that came out. It was like it brings me back to that time of like Michael Jackson's leather jacket and a boombox. <laughs> you know, that's what I think of, and I'm like, I think well, this means a little updating. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Connie loves Ellen. it. Connie loves all 80s. She, she like, reminisces about I the 80s all the time. Wouldn't refer to Ellen as 80s. That's more, like, 90s for me. Yeah, um, 90s. So, yeah, that was, that was, that's, that whole thing is an interesting discussion, too. And I get into this, uh, get into this uh, in the book a little bit, too. 
you know, Ellen was sort of this this shooting star at Disney in the early 90s. And she had her her TV show, Ellen, not the talk show, but the sitcom. Mm-hmm. And it was Disney produced and it was, you know, this big thing. And she was everywhere. She was in Epcot and she was in Hollywood Studios. You know, the old writer stop before that, it was by the book it was the name of that little gift shop. And that was themed to uh, the shop that she owned on her sitcom. And so she was just this big rising star. And then, you know, there was all this controversy that came with Ellen in the 90s. And so... Disney sort of took a step back from that. But even that, like that whole chapter from history plays out right there in the middle of Epcot. And it does, you walk into that building, it takes you right back to that time period. Uh, and it, and it's very interesting how, you know, another thing I talk about is we don't, as fans, we don't expect a movie to keep up with the times. Like we can watch a movie from the eighties. And if it's a great movie, we don't complain that it seems like it's from the eighties, but a theme park attraction we do that does bother us. And so like the expectation is different. And that's, that's interesting too. Why, why is it that, you know, back to the future is wonderful as a 1980s film, but captain EO strikes guests as, you know, inexcusably old and outdated. Uh, Yes. Different, different set of expectations. But I will say the one, the thing about the eighties that, that does survive or should survive at Epcot is that it was also as much as much as it was a decade about weirdness. It was also a decade of optimism. There was just this real sense that like this cool technology was on the horizon. Like computers were here and we could do anything and every, like all, all illnesses and disease will be solved and, and the world peace is within reach. And like, that is the optimism of Epcot Center, uh, both Future World and World Showcase, like the whole park is devoted to the single loftiest aspiration that any human being could ever have, which is world peace. Right? And that's what yeah. it's all about. It's 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 a sincere, genuine belief that that was within reach. Uh, there was this song in the original Spaceship Earth called, or not the, uh, the original, but Tomorrow's Child. Uh, you know, it was all about that's who we were. We were tomorrow's child and we were going to be the generation to solve this. Yes. So that, that's, that's what made the 80s awesome. And I want that to stay in Epcot. I dropped the mic agree with you more. Yes. <laughs> Boom. We're done here, everybody. Yeah. No, seriously. Cause I'm, I'm sad that Bruce didn't get to feel that, you know, as a kid, I think that if, if I could bring you back, Bruce, that would be the park I would take. I don't think I would even take you to the magic kingdom. I would take you to Epcot in the eighties to feel that energy and to feel that it was, inspiring and you were you know we were young kids at the time but it just felt like we were the future and that like you said the technology was cutting edge and that there was just so much happening and you couldn't wait to see and i don't want that to ever disappear in epcot and like i want to bring it back i for one i for one enjoy captain eo by the way no, okay, I know good. you did. <laughs> Me too. I mean, you guys mentioned Michael Jackson, but you, I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. No, it wasn't a bad yeah. thing that I thought of that. It was just that um, that's what I thought of when I went in there. But I do like Captain EO. I, I, I did like, although I do like the Pixar short that they had recently um, as well. But I, I did miss Captain EO when I go there. Yeah, and you know, even though Captain EO was not like an opening day attraction, it was slightly later into Epcot Center, and then it, it crossed the bridge into the second iteration of Epcot. But I really think that attraction brought with it the best mission statement for the park. There's that song, We Are Here to Change the World. I mean, that is Epcot's ethos, and it was captured in this incredibly catchy Michael Jackson pop song uh, <laughs> of all places. But, yeah, I mean, who would have thought that, like, the brand ambassador for Epcot would have been Michael Jackson? But, uh, yeah, that that's it. And that's why that attraction, I think, has such staying power beyond just people's love for Michael Jackson after his passing. But it's something about that message sort of i guess you know uh, resonates with with what epcot says to people and we can attest to that because our kids who didn't grow up knowing michael jackson loved that attraction really yeah that's awesome to hear yeah they loved it they would we'd, they would always love enjoy going to see that mm-hmm. they're sad that it was gone i mean like you said the disney and pixar short film i think that needs to be somewhere i just wish they didn't take it away out of you know i wish it wasn't replacing captain eo yeah, I just kind of feel like maybe that should be. I feel like that should be in Hollywood Studios somewhere. I don't know. It, anyway. it would probably fit better there. You know, there is yeah. there is this history of celebrating the movies in Future World. I mean, you know, the Great Movie Ride and really all of Hollywood Studios began as, as I'm sure you guys know, as a as a proposed pavilion for Future World. There was going to be like a, a movie pavilion in Future World. So uh, there's there's like a there's a historical connection, I guess an argument one can make to justify it being there. But for me, anytime one attraction goes away, this is not just Epcot, but any any theme park, 
like it's always a debate with guests, right? Like, right. Are, are Disney parks museums, or should we always be making way for the new? Yeah. And I just think if something new comes along, it it needs to be as good as or better than what it replaces, and it needs to be about something. You know, with Epcot, for example, the the attraction that all the original Epcot Center fans miss the most is Horizons, right? You just log on any Disney message board, spend 10 minutes there, you will find someone complaining that Horizons closed. And <laughs> Not me, and, just kidding. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> did, you guys, did you guys get to do Horizons ever? You Bruce didn't. I did not. I don't think, well, I don't yeah. think you did, Bruce. Yeah. I was a very uh, deprived child. Well, I, I didn't either, or at least I don't recall ever getting to experience it in person. So my experience, you know, has been through through YouTube later, but it really is just such a beautiful, uh, just artistic work, really. I mean, it's, it's so much more than a ride, Horizons, uh, but it also very much existed in the 1980s. So, you know, one of the reasons it left is because people were complaining at the time that nobody was like, I love Horizons. People were complaining that Disney wasn't updating it. So the thing is, I, I make the point in the book, it's not that we need Disney to rebuild Horizons. We just need Disney to build attractions that inspire us to look toward our Horizons, right? So that it's about that thing, uh, that feeling, that sentiment that we want to get from from the park's central theme. So next yeah. land so- should be 80s land. <laughs> hey, I would that be would, there. Me too. Yeah. I would. Be. I would. Yeah, with Bruce, do you even have to? I would yeah. be like a kid all over again, being like, "Yes, I finally got to go to Disney in the '80s." <laughs> Aww, I'm sorry, Bruce. Well, I'm looking at the chapters. There's 11 chapters, and you go into so you talk about it says chapter one, Ellen's energy adventure, chapter two, mission space, chapter three, test track. Do you what do you do specifically on those chapters? Do you talk about what do you talk about about the attraction? Like do you give the history of the attraction? What do you what tell us more yeah. about that? So the book is divided into two parts. Part one is uh, future world, part two is world showcase. And there is one attraction uh, or one chapter for each attraction. And so uh, okay. that's that's structured a little differently than my other books and it really gives me the opportunity to take all the time I need to dive into and dissect and kind of get to the heart of each attraction. So often uh, it starts with a history. And what's cool about Epcot is I was actually able to uncover some new things. And that's that's not always possible in the age where, as I said, of the internet, everything about Disney is known. But what's weird about Epcot, again, is that word weird. Even though it is 11 years younger than Magic Kingdom as a theme park, right? It's existed for 11 fewer years. It somehow has more history than Magic Kingdom just because so much has changed. There was just a whole lot of digging to do. And I actually worked on a few things with uh, with uh, Walt Disney Archives and Walt Disney Imagineering to uncover some stuff. And so often the attraction discussions begin with with a history. And then once that foundation is laid, it's, it's then really about, as I said before, what makes us love this attraction or occasionally what makes people not love an attraction so much as is the case with like circle of life which hasn't been so popular mission space often isn't popular and so it's it's about answering these questions and then on top of that the i guess the ultimate thing about the book is answering these fan controversies uh things like when is it appropriate for a character to appear in world showcase case in point anna and elsa in the Norway Pavilion. Uh, what role should a government play, like the Chinese government play, as a sponsor of a theme park attraction or a corporation for that matter? You know, should the Disney Corporation sort of defer to a corporation like Chevrolet or should it be more about the Disney brand? Now, these are questions that fans have been debating for years and years. And what I realized in the course of writing this book is that the best way to finally answer these questions or to have like tools for answering the questions is, is to use the attractions themselves as the tools, as the texts for answering these. And so you, uh, for example, with the character question, what's really cool is that you can, you can take something like uh, the three caballeros in Mexico, and you can compare that to the role that Anna and Elsa play in Norway and get down to the bottom of what actually is bothering fans about characters in these rides. And why is it that people seem to be bothered by Anna and Elsa in Norway, but not so much by the three caballeros in Mexico? 
it's i don't think it can be something inherent in frozen it, it can't be just that frozen is popular uh and so actually i think the book comes to some really interesting conclusions about all of that but the attractions are the answers when we look at those and how they work and what it is that people respond to in them kind of all of these controversies that have haunted fans for years suddenly become clear and to me that was the most exciting thing about writing the book what where did you do your research for these uh, facts or to get the the history behind these attractions or the pavilions where did you go to get your history, your your uh, your information from so it's it, it really depends on on what I'm researching right and it's a lot of time in in books uh, from the time period actually they don't do this with all their theme parks but Epcot or the Walt Disney World Resort was really great about publishing a lot of literature in the early days of Epcot. And it's all out of print now, but you can still find copies. And so uh, there's actually a book by a guy named Robert Beard that was published by the company that was a guide to Epcot Center, uh, much of it written before the park even opened. And it is chock full of information uh, about what the thought was behind these attractions. And it's often things that you don't even pick up on when you're just writing them, but it's it's so helpful for a discussion 35 years later. Do you remember the name uh, of that book? Uh, I think it's Epcot Creating the World of Tomorrow off the top of my head. I think that's what it's called. And there are multiple editions over the years, but if you can get your hands on the 1981-82 publication of that, I mean, that's really gold. But often, you know, you've got to go beyond just the corporate source. And so I spent a lot of time going into contemporaneous newspaper and magazine publications mm-hmm. from the early days of the park. So I wanted to know when, when the Living Seas opened in 1982, uh, or actually I think it might have been 83, something like that. Well, what did, the Liv- what did the Los Angeles Times say about it? What did the Orlando Sentinel say about it? What did a local newspaper, uh, you know, in Apopka or in some little small town in central or southern Florida, what did they say about it? Who were they crediting with, mm-hmm. with um, developing these things? And one of the uh, little mysteries that this book, I think, has been able to solve is who was the original narrator for Spaceship Earth? And you would think that would be a, a clear matter of historical record, but as it turns out, that has been a mystery for many years. You've got Marty Sklar insisting it was one thing. Uh, you've got newspaper publications even going back to the early 80s offering conflicting reports about who narrated it. There is confusion because some of the same people were narrating attractions in Magic Kingdom and Epcot at the same time. And so it was really a matter of digging into these newspaper reports uh, to kind of clear up this mess that has persisted for years. And uh, spoiler alert, Marty Sklar was not right. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, so that's actually in an appendix in the book. I guess I didn't finish answering your earlier question, but after part one and part two, the book ends uh, with an epilogue called The State of the Center. And uh, it's really uh, about sizing up what's happening in Epcot now and where Epcot maybe could and should go in the future. And then it ends with two appendices, uh, which answer these questions. First, which who was the original narrator for Spaceship Earth? And then secondly, is that really Steve Jobs? Uh, and that 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 geeky animatronic toward the end of Spaceship Earth <laughs> is that Steve Jobs? Is it supposed to be Steve Jobs? Is it fair to argue that it's Steve Jobs? And here again, you would think that this would there would be a clear answer to this, clear, but there yeah. isn't. Uh, and this to me, as, as just like a researcher and as a complete nerd, this is the most interesting thing about Disney fandom is when things aren't clear, and like we as fans get to be the the detectives and and come to our own you know conclusions about it. Um, it's just super exciting stuff. Same thing with, uh, with my Magic Kingdom books. Nobody knows when Spaceship Earth opened in Magic – I'm sorry, Space Mountain. Nobody knows the day it opened in Magic Kingdom. There are all these conflicting reports. You go back to uh, the 1970s, a newspaper, New York Times says one thing, the Orlando Sentinel says another. Like, that's crazy. How is that not – How do they not have it – right, exactly. Yeah. But it is so much fun, and I think that maybe it's done intentionally. You never know. That's kind of like, like what I like to think. <laughs> keep eating hey. the right well it keeps the mystery alive and it keeps people going to do some research and dig deep and talk about it i'm sure uh, exactly yeah it, it makes us all crazy fans yeah like we erased our yeah. first episode so no one knows when we really started <laughs> Can, is that's, that, that's, that's a great idea i really need to do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah Ooh, ours are yeah pretty bad don't listen to the first few anyway <laughs> what was the one thing that surprised you doing the research for this book Hmm. That's a good question. I will say 
I don't think I knew how much I didn't know about Epcot. Right. So here I am, like I've been podcasting for 13 years and I've written some books on Disney and you know, I've probably read God knows everything out there about Disney. And, you know, I feel like I, I kind of know my stuff. Right. I don't know everything, but I know a lot about Disney. And I kind of felt like, yeah, I've, I've got the gist of, of, of what Epcot is and what it has been. And I was in for a real surprise when I started digging in. There are just so many little chapters of Epcot history, things that were open for a few weeks or little shows uh, or things that were said by somebody in Imagineering or something uh, that it's, it's all just, it's just interesting. And the real treat in writing a book about Disney is that you get to justify spending the time uh, doing this research. And then I get to share that research with other people. And so I'm just like a kid in a candy store, like, Oh my gosh, guys, look what I found, you know, and that's what I'm, I'm doing in the book. Uh, and, who knew a park that I've, I've been alive for most of Epcot's existence and I've been going there most of my life. I should know pretty much everything, but there was so much I didn't. Uh, and it's, it's crazy that so much history can live in a place so young. Hmm. I think really that's cool. And that circles back to what you said. We said in the beginning where people need to kind of take their time and slow down. And because even if you've been to Disney five times, there's still so many things that you haven't seen, no matter how many times you visited in those five visits. 100%. And, you know, I always say, I think maybe like the secret to wisdom in life, if I can get a little philosophical here, is that is realizing that you don't know what you don't know and you can't know what you don't know. And we will never stop learning from these parks. I mean, that's really what I'm realizing that not only learning about them in terms of like factually what went into making them, because there are a million stories. You know, every person who worked on that park has a lifetime of stories that in some way might have mattered to the park. But then there's also so much we can just learn by like extrapolating from our experiences there and applying them to our own lives. So that's why the Disney fandom is so rich. There's just so much to get out of it. It's just this like eternal fountain of just inspiration. That's that's why it's art, really. That's another argument that I'm making in this book series is that yes, theme parks are fun. Uh, they are. They're super fun, and they should be enjoyed for fun, and I, I hope that the book has fun with them, but they also really are artworks, and I think we would not respond to them the way we do as fans if there wasn't something truly and inherently artistic and worthwhile in these beyond just mere diversions or recreations or like, wow, wasn't that drop on the roller coaster fun? There really is something more happening in a Disney park that maybe doesn't happen so much at, say, a Six Flags that's, that's speaking to us and like that really deserves a moment to stop and smell the roses and think about it and reflect on it and appreciate it. Well said. Totally. Yes. Lots of great points today, Aaron. I'm really happy you're you're here today. I know this hey, is great. It is unlocking the magic. That's yeah. what we do. That's what we do. That's what we try to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm just I'm holding the I've got like a, a bunch of keys. And like sometimes I pull out the right one. This is a great, I think this is a great show. I I think fans are going to love the show uh, talking about Epcot. I want to know a couple things before we wrap up here. What is your favorite attraction in Epcot? In Epcot. Is it a cop out to say spaceship earth? Absolutely not. Okay. At all. Probably. I mean, it has to be right. Like spaceship earth is such a masterpiece. It has an unfair advantage because it's very long. And it happens True. to be one of the most visually interesting buildings in the world. Uh, and, you know, Spaceship Earth is just this, it's just so cool to look at. Like, you already love the thing before you even know what's inside it. Uh, and then, I mean, it's literally a journey through the history of time. It is the story of us, how we learn to talk to each other, to communicate. You know, and I, I'm a communications uh, studies and English major, and that's kind of what the ride is about. So it's also like a nice little flashback to college <laughs> uh, for me. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily love the final act with uh, with Judy Dench, but uh, even though I do love Judy Dench, but, you know, the, the whole iPad uh, thing at the end is not my favorite. But still, there's so much that goes right in that attraction that I just, uh, I never, ever grow tired of it. I'm just glad you didn't say test track. (laughs) (laughs) Not a fan. No, I like it. It's just like, we did the whole podcast about the history. And if you said test track, that would have been weird. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been weird. Yeah, that's right. That is right. Test track is fun. It's a fun addition to it. I mean, obviously people are craving some kind of thrill attraction in Epcot, but I think, you know, it's not my favorite either. And I'm glad you spe- you said Spaceship Earth because I agree with you totally. Yeah, yeah and that is Connie's definitely. favorite attraction. Literally, we have to go on there as soon as we get in, and it's the last attraction we have to go on when we leave. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yes. Don't you feel, I mean, do you, I'm sure people ask you, or maybe you, I don't know, do people ever say like, what's the first thing I should do in oh, Epcot totally. at the kingdom? I mean, is, is that your go-to answer for Epcot? Connie's so for sure. Step. Mine is food. You can't. <laughs> food? <laughs> is that your favorite attraction? Food? Yes. The, the showcase is mine. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually it. like I actually like living it with the land as well. That's one of my favorite ones too. Yes. Oh, that is great. That's so great. All right, I just have two questions. These are from some friends of ours, and one okay. is speaking of living with the land. Did you learn something specific that may we might not know about with living with the land? Anything while you were talking about that um, attraction in your book? Things that I learned. Oh, or just like I'm, maybe one thing specifically, like that surprised you, or something that you know, so that obviously there's probably a lot to talk about. It is my favorite attraction, and interestingly enough, Marty Sklar's favorite attraction. <laughs> well, this is this is super specific. It's almost just sort of trivia, but I found it interesting because I'd never stopped to think about it before. Okay. Uh, but the alligators, you know, there's the, there's a little section on different kinds of farming, right, in the greenhouse, mm-hmm. and there's alligator farming, and like alligator farming is a real thing, but why are those alligators in the right? Like alligator isn't served anywhere in Walt Disney world. Uh, and it, it had never occurred to me that that's actually there more for the element of surprise of sort of wowing guests. It's almost like a thrill element and living with the land is the last ride. Anyone would ever think of as a thrill ride. Right. 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 But it just, it was, it was a great realization for me to think, oh my gosh, this is kind of in a weird way a thrill because you don't often ride by alligators and guests do have that moment when that happens, when they're there, if the alligators are there that day and you ride by and you see them right beside you, there's just like, oh my gosh, we're right next to alligators. And you know, they aren't actually being farmed. Like most of the things in that greenhouse are being farmed and they do actually serve a real purpose in uh, Walt Disney world. But it's, it's cool to me that there was that little attention to, well, let's give, let's give guests a little wow moment here. Uh, what a cool thing. Yeah. It does show you that they do think of everything when they build these attractions. Yeah. Okay. And the other question was, if you could change one thing specifically about the park, what would it be? Just one thing. One thing. Even like one attraction or one little element. I think we kind of talked about it because we wanted to bring sort of the 80s feeling back, that Epcot Center. But Right. So, well, okay, since I already talked about that kind of like bigger picture thing, I'll I'll give a little more specific answer. And it has to do with Mission Space. And I always feel bad about saying this because I have some close friends who absolutely love Mission Space. I'm not one of them, but I understand, you know, just the idea of getting to experience what it's like to launch into space for real is just one of the coolest things. So, like, that part of the attraction is very cool. But it really looks like you're playing Nintendo 64 when you're you're watching those graphics. And I always hate – I know that guests roll their eyes when they see that because you walk in in 2017, you see graphics from, uh, you know, the early 2000s, but they look kind of like they're from the mid-90s. And you just kind of think, like, oh – this is yeah. what Disney does, you know. So I would like to see. Really, I don't think Mission Space is the best fit for Future World. Period. But they spent a whole bunch of money on it, so it's probably going right. to be there for a little while. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would like to see it spruced up at the very least, uh, so that at least it doesn't strike guests as as kind of disjointed from from 2017. What they should do with that is they should get you yeah. virtual reality headsets as you enter that attraction and that's what you should wear instead of making you super close to the screen you sit back you put the virtual reality headset on and then you go through the experience hey that is the new trend i I don't know if you guys have heard i haven't experienced it yet but SeaWorld has this new well they've updated one of their roller coasters to add a vr headset component and people are raving about it so i've got to i've got to go test that out yes i heard about that actually yeah yeah i think that's the one thing in epcot that i'd like to see too is like the technology just be so super cutting edge. And I think that's what people crave when they go to a park like this. Like they don't want to see anything that's sort of irrelevant to the current time. You know, we went to this is kind of off topic, but we went to the Kennedy Space Center and just being involved with NASA and seeing things that they're doing, it would be cool if that feeling came back in Epcot where it's like the, just everything is so cutting edge. You, you can be excited for what's next. And yeah, the problem with that is the technology moves so fast, they could implement something and then two years later it could be old. That's true. Yeah, you know, I think Interventions had it right in that that was sort of the playground 
for current technology, but these weren't major investments. So all those little exhibits could be changed and kept up to date quite easily. So in my mind, like right now, Intervention should still be open and it should be exhibiting, for example, 3D printing, which I think is a very cool and exciting technology that people still don't really quite understand how it works. Like there should be an exhibit on 3D printing and there should be an exhibit on, you know, some of this new smartphone technology that can detect cancer just by sense, you know, indetectable sense uh, in, in people's breath. And like these emerging technologies, there could be little exhibits on these things and interventions. And that's kind of like that attractions role. And then everything else that requires millions of dollars and can't be updated every year should mm-hmm. look at more abstract concepts of, you know, maybe not the specific science of how we're going to solve cancer or how we're going to build machines in the future, but the bigger, broader idea of, well, what can machines do for us? What can health do for us? And, and sort of get excited about those concepts on a like more abstract emotional level that I think would be the golden ticket for future world going forward. I totally agree. Question of the show. Okay. Where's your favorite place to eat in the showcase? We didn't really talk about the I know. At all. I had to throw it in because there real I, quick. I love the showcase. I love, you know, how you had mentioned earlier, you know, basically what we're trying to tell, our, you know, all our listeners is really take the time to absorb your experience, you know, really immerse yourself in the parks and really take the time because you will wander through the countries, but you really won't realize what you're seeing unless you kind of take the time to go through each one individually. So anyway. Absolutely. My favorite place. I have to answer carefully, Bruce, because I'm talking about your favorite attraction here. I know. <laughs> uh, by the way, people are going to be pumped because this is almost an hour long, and we usually don't do more than 30 minutes because I usually can't sit here. So people are going to be super excited for this episode. Oh, I am so. It's, it, that's 100% me rambling. <laughs> it's great, though. I, it's, they'll be so I, excited. Yeah, they're going to be pumped. <laughs> they ask for it all the time. They literally ask every every time we do a live show. Hey, if you, we just want you to do a longer episode, and I'm like, yeah. no. <laughs> Hey, I'm all for more unlocking the magic. So if I can help that make that happen, then I'm excited. Thank you, Aaron. You're the best. <laughs> okay, right. favorite restaurant. I'll try to answer this quickly since we're hitting an hour. But I don't even know. I will just say – I'm going to throw out – it's not my favorite, but I will say most improved and maybe one of the most underappreciated, and that is Nine Dragons. Uh, it's it ha- For some reason, it has a reputation for being just like throwaway Chinese food. And that is the case, I think, for the quick service Chinese food in the China fleet. Okay. But hey, guys, give if, – if, if you like Chinese food, which I love, and granted, it's kind of like the American version of Chinese food. But still, give Nine Dragons another chance if you've never been or if it's been a number of years. If you've written it off because of old blog reviews, it maybe it wasn't always the best restaurant, but it really has improved. And it's very – I think – you know, this is just me, and I'm not a food critic, but I think that the food there is good. So I'm going to put my vote behind Nine Dragons. That's a great one because that's not one I expected. That okay, is perfect. Good. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I'm curious, though. What's, what's, your, what's your pick? Do you have, like, a ready-to-go favorite? Ye- me or Connie? <laughs> yeah, my, I like Morocco and then the Japan sushi. Yes. Okay, yeah. that's great. Morocco is another one. Like, people just completely forget that restaurant is there. If every other well, – are you talking about which, which – Either the quick service or the fine dining one. Okay, but not Spice Road Table. No. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if, if everything else in World Showcase, if all of Walt Disney World is at capacity, you will still find a table at the restaurant yes. in Morocco. Just no it's one true. goes there. And Marrakesh, the table service, is buried deep in that back of that pavilion. But if you walk back there, you meander through those pathways, and you find that restaurant, I'm telling you, the food's pretty good, and it's a nice experience. It's very different from the rest of Epcot. And I know the menu sounds kind of scary, but uh, I recently heard Joe Rody say, every time you travel to a foreign country, you're scared to try the food, and then you eat it, and you say, wow, that tastes like chicken. And there's a lot of truth <laughs> in that. Yeah, that's Just, so true. You know, everything is kind of a variation, but it's not that different. So if the menu scares you, give it a chance, uh, because it really is very good, too. Marrakesh. That's how I we stumbled upon Morocco, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened to us. We sort of, oh, let's try, let's just try it. It didn't seem that busy, and so it was wow, a great experience. And now it's our go. Like I can just eat around the whole. I mean, there's no place in Epcot that I really don't like. <laughs> so yeah, but is that your favorite too, though, Marrakesh? Um, hmm. I don't know if I have a, a number one favorite. I feel like they all lump into like I have to. We this last trip that we did, we actually ate around the world and we, we visited every sort of quick service. And what we did was we meal shared. So we'd get everybody kind of snacked around the world, even though we're ordering a meal. 
and kind of shared it. And it really kind of opened our eyes to experiencing Epcot in a different way than before. Because usually when we'd go, we'd pick a restaurant, you know, you do your quick service for lunch or whatever. And this time we went everywhere. And I think that was really fun. Don't you think, Bruce? Yeah, you have, you have to spend time in the in each individual land in the pavilion because they're all different. And if you don't, like if you just have a fine dining or a sit-down restaurant, you're going to waste an hour and a half in one of those restaurants. And I don't mean waste, but you know, spend, spend an hour yeah. and a half, which is fine. But I feel like you <laughs> will walk to the restaurant, you'll eat there, and then when you're done, you'll leave, and you'll kind of go on to the next attraction. But if you eat maybe at the quick service or take your time and sample a little bit around, you're going to spend more time wandering through those places. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you just said. You've got to spend time in each of the individual pavilions. You know, Going back to that to the early Epcot literature from like uh, 81, 82 – it's very clear that the Imagineers' early plan for Epcot Center is that each pavilion would be a place where you spent upwards of half a day or more. Wow. Like in, in one pavilion, the Imagination Pavilion or the Living Seas, you would spend minimum three, four hours, if not half a day or more, in each of these pavilions. And so this would keep you coming back to Epcot over and over again. And that actually was the case. I mean, again, going back to these contemporaneous news reports, uh, newspapers reported that guests were spending the most, like a good portion of their day in one pavilion and so having to come back for repeat visits. And that's crazy to imagine now. Like, can you imagine spending most of your day in in any of those future world pavilions, really, uh, but that that was that was the idea that there would just be so much and so many big attractions coupled with little exhibits and everything. Uh, but it is still a little bit true of World Showcase, uh, as you were saying. So, even though that isn't necessarily what we expect from Epcot anymore, I would just encourage people to, if you can, like if you've got these long vacation blocks, which not everyone has, but if you do, like you said, I mean, to eat around the world, what a cool way to experience World Showcase, you know, if if you have the time and the budget to do that. Yeah, and it, it's tough because if your kids are anywhere from 7 to 14, they're not going to want to do that. But if they're younger oh, yeah. than that or older than that, you may be able to convince them. And if they're younger, you just tell them they are. <laughs> Yes. You make them. Yes. <laughs> I Epcot love it. by mandate. I yeah. love it. <laughs> but they've definitely added things now that they didn't have when I was younger to, I think, involve kids more. There's crafts that kids can do. There's games that they can do around the World Showcase, which I think are still really fun and cool. And I don't know, even though Bruce mentioned an age gap of, like, if they don't want to try things, I think our kids really loved, you know, going to... I don't know, Japan and trying the candy from the sh- you know the store. Yeah. And, you know, that Bruce tried coffee and <laughs> in a can, warm coffee in a can. That was pretty good actually. We got ice and poured it over ice. Wasn't that it was good. It anyway. was good. <laughs> so yeah. So that's awesome. That, that's one thing I've always wanted to do is take I want to take a year where each month I go to the pavilion and I buy one like uh, one package one of each packaged food item from the gift shop there. So one of every candy, <laughs> cook, whatever. And then like have a party, invite a bunch of friends over a house party and, and put all of these snacks out. And we have just like a Japan pavilion night, right? <laughs> where we're, we're all just sample this smorgasbord of, of packaged candies and cookies and whatnot from the pavilion. Like that I've been, I've, I live next to Disney world and I've been going there all my life and I've still never experienced world showcase that way. So there are so many ways to do it. So many variations, totally. I have to yep. say, in the Japan Pavilion, that candy shop, or it's not really a candy shop, it's just a shop, but the candy, they do such a good job of making them look good. Yeah. Not such a good job of making them taste good, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's it been a couple of fails. Yeah, it's hit or miss, but that's the fun. That's like going, it's just like you said earlier, visiting a country, not knowing what the food would be like, and you just take a chance and risk, that's half the fun. Totally, yeah. So. Every yeah. bots, or what is it? Every every flavor, birdie bots. Every flavor beans. That's it. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much. Aaron's Aaron's book is called The Thinking Fan's Guide to Walt Disney World Epcot. I got it right go, that Bruce. time. You can find it on Amazon or his website. Aaron, what's your website again? Yeah, AaronWallaceOnline.com. All you need to know is my name. It's my handle on Twitter too, at Aaron Wallace. You can find my podcasts and my books and anything else I do uh, there. What's your favorite social platform that people can reach out to you and say hello? I'm a big Twitter person. I mean, I think I've at least got a profile everywhere at this point, or I'm trying. I'm not always the best with social media, but Twitter, I live there. So if you want to hear my rantings and ravings about, you know, whatever is the topic of the day, <laughs> then uh, Aaron Wallace on Twitter, or just go to my website, AaronWallaceOnline.com. Awesome. Perfect. Nice, nice and simple, Bruce. we got to work on I that. know. Ours is so complicated. <laughs>
for everything online. Anyway. <laughs> Just go to the website for us, and then you can try yeah. to find it from there, I guess. Yeah, yeah right. That always works. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you, Aaron, again. It was a, always a blast. Can't wait to – actually, you know, when we get down to Orlando, we should definitely do a meetup. Uh, I would love that. Let's for sure make that happen. And awesome. Thank you again for having me on uh, another time. And let me thank your listeners, too, for letting me spend some time with you guys uh, once again. I appreciate it, and this has been a lot of fun. Cool, man. I think this is going to be a good show. You know it's going to be a good show when an hour goes by and I'm not – actually, I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) We are all awake. Granted, I just had coffee, but I actually give you guys the credit for keeping me up. So I – it's been a blast. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, guys. Well, that was a bunch of fun. That was fun. That was a really long episode. Too. I could literally talk to Aaron for hours and hours and hours. That was my gift to everybody on Facebook who said <laughs> they wanted a longer episode, and I usually don't ever give it to them. Not that I don't want to give them a longer episode, but sometimes I just get... Just admit it. I'm boring. So it's just when you, it's just you and I, you get bored of me. Just no, say it's not, it. It's just, just I get admit a little, it. I get a little antsy. <laughs> it's fine. It's but that right. was fun with Aaron. That was a good talk. I like talking to Aaron. He's a He's kind of like us, you know? He just likes talking Disney and gets passionate about it and likes the history. And uh, when we asked him what his favorite attractions were at Epcot, we all had similar ones. Yeah. He even liked my uh, 80s Michael Jackson jacket and white glove and <laughs> all that stuff. It was it was a lot of fun. So where can we find – where can you guys find yeah, his, Aaron? His podcast is Zippity Doo Pod on iTunes and uh, his website is Aaron Wallace Online. Nice and simple. And if you're like me, A-A-R-O-N-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. Oh boy, Bruce is I had to spell spelling it on air. It's like, I don't know how to spell Aaron. I wouldn't know how to spell Wallace. Yeah. But so you, you know what? Fumble up. There you go. Or just go to our website, unlockingthemagic.com, okay. and go to our show notes, and then you just click the blue link. That's much easier. That's what I would do. Yes. Perfect. All right. Thanks to our sponsor. Enchanted Escapes Travel. If you're looking to book your next Disney vacation, they will do that for you. No cost for you at all. Visit them at enchanted-escapes.com. Yeah. The thing that I like is that it doesn't cost you any money, and they do all the work for you. You just send them a quick note saying, hey, I want to eat it here. (laughs) Do your magic. Do your magic. That's what I like. Isn't that the best? (laughs) Yes. And then, uh, yeah, I love that. So on Twitter, I am WDWUnlockMagic if you want to say hello to me. Uh, Facebook, again, we remember that. We said that in the beginning of the show, Unlocking the Magic. And on Instagram, we are Unlock the Magic. We got to do something about these different names on different social networks. We're working on it. Yeah. I like Aaron's whole thing. It's like, Aaron Wallace, that's all you have to know. As long as you know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You do have you to do that. Find him. But you should go check out our website to get Connie's packing list, too, over at unlockingthemagic.com. And don't forget that we go live every Monday night over on Facebook. That's it for me, Connie. That is it for me. So thanks, everybody, again. And we'll see you. <laughs>